The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 26, 1 through 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thank you, Jen, for the reading of the passage. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at Christ Press. And um, my friend Micah is back there. It's good to see him back. Okay, good. Um, uh, yeah, we have just started a new series um, on Isaiah called Following God in a Difficult World. And this is going to be a very, very interesting and important series for us as we think about the connection between the Old Testament and the New and how we think about Christian identity and particularity in our ages of pluralism and so on and so forth. So if it is okay with you, um, I've preached already twice and I realize that those two sermons are very different. I have a manuscript right here, so I don't know how it's going to go now, but <laughs> we'll see about that. So let's pray and then trust the Lord to, to be our rock and guide. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word is everlasting, that you speak and it shall be done as it has been done. We pray that you will do that work of bringing us closer to, to you and to one another as the Spirit of God transforms this community and all of us. We thank you for all that has happened in our liturgy so far, welcoming of the stranger, listening to the child's prayer, listening to a beatific song about the bread of angels, as well as welcoming Lee Eric Fesco to, on, to be on staff, and now even the listening of the word and proclaiming therein. May you receive all the glory and joy. Amen. Okay, so quite similar to a number of you, I think, Isaiah is my favorite Old Testament book, for it contains such sublime expressions and pro profound portrayals of Yahweh as the God of Israel, as well as breathtaking and vista-opening prophecies about Israel's future revelation and the role that the Messianic figure, whom we will understand as Jesus Christ, would play in Israel's redemption and restoration. And today's text that we have read for us, Isaiah 26, 1 through 6, is no exception. It actually presents to us in a very compelling way what God thinks about cities, and therefore how we ought to be thinking about cities as well as many of us do live in this city or around Nashville. So God of the City is the title of the sermon and I'd like to do a brief biblical theology of the city from the Old Testament and link it to the New Testament as well if that's okay with you. 
But before we get to kind of fasten and tighten our intellectual and theological seatbelts, let's take a quick cultural detour and make a few observations. So let, let's imagine the map of the United States. Okay, imagine it. Are you with me right now? Imagine that. Someone were to ask you to identify and circle on that very map places and regions where it is more likely to find God, where would you circle? Would they be more urban? Would they be more suburban? Would they be more in red states, blue states, south, north, west, east, midwest, wherever? So think about those spots and circle it for me, please, if that's okay with you. We all have our perspectives and prejudices as to where God is more likely to dwell, and more often than not, it is a thinly veiled reflections of our own personal biases, claiming God for the municipalities and regions where we are presently sojourning. I realize that we're living in a very, very divided and polarizing world, especially here in the United States. I don't mean to further intensify the division, but at the same time, I want us to think about the cities where we live and how we think about God's place in it. Because more often than not, we think of God as in the suburbs and rural parts and think that God has forsaken the city. And I think there is very interesting kind of amalgamation of perspectives that we can think together, especially as we think through Isaiah chapter 26 and even before that in Isaiah chapter 25. So where we think about where God is more likely, it often shows up as I speak with parents of high school students, as some of you know that my day job is uh, as a uh, teacher at Vanderbilt University, and, and also I do a lot of alumni interviews for my alma mater. So as I speak with parents of high school students, especially Christian parents, especially those whose children are interested in studying up north or in bigger cities, it always seems to me that in their minds there are safer places and not so safe places for studying, especially for Christian students and so on. How do I know that? I actually live with one like that. My wife, uh, we have a ninth grader uh, coming up uh, into high school, and she and I talked a lot about that. And I think, you know, where are safe places, where are not safe places? These are important questions to be had, but it often reflects where we think about God is and how God is active or not active in our world. Let me uh, surprise all of us here. God is no more to be found in rural North Dakota or in deep Mississippi than in San Francisco or Copenhagen, Denmark. We think that God is in the safer environs more likely, such as suburbs or exurbs or wherever, but such thinking goes against the theology of ubiquity or omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. You cannot localize God's presence or purposes, God's activities or agency. One of the books that I have taught um, as a teacher at Vandy, as well as here at Christ Press, at least certain snippets, is um, written by this North African Christian, fourth century Bishop of Hippo named Augustine. Augustine wrote this very, very important book called The City of God. He began writing it shortly after the fall of Rome and completed about 23 years after that. And the, sort of a, the reason for that uh, book's composition is this, that in 410, uh, this barbarian tribe called the Visigoths, led by King Alaric, invaded Rome, the eternal city of God, the empire that cannot be toppled over, and no one thought that was possible, and yet this tiny kind of tribe came and 
sacked Rome, and many of the Roman intelligentsia and, the, and the, the powers that be thought that the reason why Rome fell is because Rome got weaker by embracing a loser religion called Christianity. Christianity at its core kind of worships a god who was crucified or, you know, embraced a state execution by Rome. So Roman kind of uh, uh, elites thought that Christianity was the reason why Rome got, you know, um, Rome lost. And Augustine, in order to answer that charge, wrote this book called The City of God. And in The City of God, to give you a very, very much of a nutshell summary, he presents to the readers two cities, City of Humankind and City of God. Basically, these two cities are kind of in kind of a, a juxtaposed relationship. They're in a parallel existence, coexistence. And he says, he makes some very interesting observations. He says, the city of man or city of humankind is visible to all. We can see Rome. We can see Nashville. It is obviously present and palpably felt among all. Whereas the city of God is more often than not invisible, more often than not that activity is imperceptible, Therefore, what it requires is the eyes of faith and a perspective of faith that transcends this world and this world alone, right? So I think for the Christians, as many of us here are, so as, as many in this room call themselves Christians, that means for you, we're living in these two worlds, city of humankind and city of God. And as Augustine lays out very, very helpfully, he says to really to be able to live together in these two cities, what you need is the divine presence as decoded to you by the Holy Spirit. So more on that later on. But as a nutshell, what Augustine says in the city of God is these two contrasted realities, the earthly city and the heavenly city or city of humankind versus city of God. The earthly city, Augustine writes in the introduction, was created by self-love, love of self. And that's a very important phrase, that it is ultimately about me, myself, and I. Right? It is me and my purposes, my preoccupations, and so on. So the earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt of God. On the other hand, the heavenly city was created by the love of God, as far as reaching to the point of contempt of self. You love God so much that everything else becomes secondary and tertiary and relatively insignificant. On the other hand, the city of mankind, humankind is such that you love yourself so much that in the end, love of God, the being of God has no place at all. So we'll see how that kind of shakes out in our text. But let's look at some of the other texts in the Bible about what it says, what they say about cities. The first kind of a reference to the city that shows up in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, very early on. And this is right after um, this horrific act of killing of a brother that shows up in the act of Cain killing his own brother Abel. And God speaks to Cain and puts a hedge of protection around Cain. And Cain, having received that un unexpected and undeserved divine grace, rather than praising God, he actually builds a city and names it after who? His own son. And to me, that really typifies and symbolizes much of human activity. Rather than giving glory ultimately to God, what we end up doing is giving glory to self and our own posterity and locating the locus of glory and all joy within. It is that sort of solipsistic or inward curvature that we see within humankind. 
Genesis 11 further on says this, that as they are now about to refute and refuse to accept God's gracious invitation to be scattered and be multiplying, what they do instead is that they said, we want to actually gather and build ourselves a city and build a tower that will reach to the heavens. This is the story of the Tower of Babel, right? So we get that building a city rather than following God's dictates. So both those texts seem to portray cities more negatively, but that's not all there is because there is a text that is really, really surprising. I know many of you love to read the Bible, but I don't know whether you know about this text, Joshua chapter 20. In that chapter, we are introduced to a very, very mind-boggling concept. It is really, uh, in terms of legal kind of uh, development, legal theory and practice development, this is really ahead of its time. You know what I'm talking about? It's called the cities of refuge. Let me read for us. These six cities called Kadesh, Shechem, Kirith Arba, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan, they're scattered throughout Israel, and this is what they were. God says to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone, listen to this, anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. Did you get that? I mean, think about that. It is not premeditated murder, but accidental manslaughter. If you are like that, if you're such a person, if you're afraid of being avenged of your blood, what you need to do is run toward the cities of refuge because there you'll find protection. Now, let me ask you, parents, if your child is thinking about going to college or visit a city, are you likely to tell your child, hey, go visit the city of refuge because that's going to be a city of fun and safety? Probably not. You're going to say, you know what, they're going to have lots of, you know, people who have accidentally killed other people. Don't go there because you don't know, stranger danger and better stay away. You with me? Right? So what we see here is very, very interesting care that God has for the city. See, historically speaking, if you're a recent immigrant, right, or if you're a refugee, are you more likely to find protection and embrace from a city or from a rural or suburban part? Look at the history of our nation. Look at the United States immigration history. Where do most people end up staying and settling in? In bigger cities because there's a greater population diversity and greater density as well. There's a greater kind of receptivity to people who are coming from abroad. Right? Cities have been, and that's why I think some people love going to different cities because there are more, greater diversity, not only of populace, but at least of cuisine, right? If you want to get great, great Chinese food, I don't think Nashville is the first place that will come to my mind. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. I mean, if you know some places, tell me, because I think I know my Chinese food, though I'm Korean, but, you know, it's just... And, <laughs> You see what I mean? So, you know, went to New York recently after my son graduated from middle school, and what he enjoyed the most was actually not just the food and not just different places, but he said to me, Dad, there are so many languages I'm hearing right now in the elevator, and, and they look like they would be speaking English, but they're speaking Russian or Spanish or German. And sure, Manhattan, the Big Apple, it, that's where a lot of people come to, not only for tourism, but also as cities of refuge. So I think we see that here in, 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 in uh, Joshua, I mean, Joshua chapter 20 as well. But as we will develop more in the New Testament, both in the Hebrews 13 and Revelation 21 and 22 later on, what we will see is the heart of God for the city. 
Not that God has forsaken the rural and the suburban. That's not the point at all. And moreover, what we'll see is the complexifying of the story because you think that God cares about Jerusalem and, and not about other Gentile cities. What we will see is that God has a heart for all cities to bring the people, all peoples of all nations, of all tongues to God himself. So in today's text, I'd like to work with you to see how the language of the city shows up and how it's described and what God's plan was with these cities then. And as a result, what God might be up to with us today in 2019 here in Nashville. And by the way, Isaiah is going to hit you pretty hard. Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah is replete with words of stern warning and judgment. It is like going to your doctor, right? I mean, there are several physicians here, but I don't know about you, but I don't think I, I mean, I like my doctor a lot. I mean, I would even dare say that he's my friend, but I don't like going to him that much. Because he will tell me things that I don't want to hear. These are not easy words to swallow. That your blood pressure or cholesterol level or your weight may be in need of coming down a little bit, they are not most encouraging words to hear, but absolutely necessary words. So this series on Isaiah is going to hit us pretty hard because Isaiah, as a prophet, what is a prophet's role? Prophets are supposed to be telling it like it is. Telling it like it is often means that it's going to hurt. But that tiny temporary hurt will redound into and, and reflect into and return as wonderful healing and transformation. And that is the hope that we have here as staff. So three quick points as we spend the rest of our time together. Three things about cities. The first point is city of human hubris. City of human hubris. The second thing we'll note is the city of divine humility. And third thing is city life in between. City of human hubris, city of divine humility, city life in between. So let's move on to the first point. City of human hubris, or hubris meaning arrogance, or just pretending as if you are the center of the universe and nothing else really matters. As you have already heard, the Cain's urban project in Genesis chapter 4, he builds a city, names it after his own son, after he has received that divine grace, undeserved and unexpected. God, rather than chastising Cain and you know, taking him out like he has to his own brother. God actually makes sure that he was, he was going to be protected. Tower of Babel, the same thing, city that reaches the heavens. And moreover, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the prophecy of Daniel in the fourth chapter, at Nebuchadnezzar's height of arrogance and preeminence of power, he exclaims, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Do you know what happens right after that? If you have read the story of Daniel, you will know that right after Dan Nebuchadnezzar says this, he turns into a wild beast and he kind of lives out in exile. And so as a quick judgment upon that human hubris, Nebuchadnezzar suffers that lot. However, as we will see the rest of the sermon, God doesn't so promptly act upon every act of insolence and insubordination against Yahweh. And that becomes a bit of a problem for the people of God. Because so on, especially in the book of Psalms, people of God had cried out, how long, O Lord, how long? And so we live in between those two cities, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So city of human hubris, we see it right here that, you know, um, in chapter 25, it speaks of these cities that are actually 
are going to be judged. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It'll never be rebuilt. So it is a prophecy. As the nation of Israel will soon explain, soon experience this unheralded and unexpected event of captivity and loss of national sovereignty and independence, what Isaiah is seeing is that God will soon also bring down and topple over these cities that are actually against God. Here in verse 5 of our chapter that we have heard earlier, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. So these are prophecies. These are words that are speaking into the future reality. Right now, it seems like this, this human hubris knows no bound. It is going from strength to strength. It is going from shore to shore. It is a powerful and unstoppable machine called Babylonian Empire, Roman Empire, right? Or what other empires there might have been, empires of Genghis Khan or Hitler or the United States of America. Every human empire, as it pretends its own self-sufficiency, we need to be reminded of the city of human hubris. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, Every city that pretends itself to be self-sufficient will be brought low. And that, I think, is a very, very tough word for all of us to swallow. Because we tend to think like that. We tend to think that if our nation, if our empire is powerful, then our gods must be blessing us. Our God must be with us and for us. Let me illustrate. So in 2002, I was a, I was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. And I had a privilege to go to Ethiopia with one of my colleagues who teaches New Testament with me. And we went to Addis Ababa in their Evangelical Theological College. And one of the things I really love about traveling is that tasting different foods. So one of the things I love about Ethiopian cuisine is this thing called injiri. It's like, you know, kind of a, a it's a, about the size of a large size pizza. And it's a dough, and in the middle of it, you put like chickpeas and chicken and goat meat and other spices, and you tear off little dough part and wrap it, you know, the, the chickpea and chicken inside of it, and you eat it with your hand, right? So as Sean and I were eating that, um, there was a, a, a boy who was about 13, 14. Um, he was actually picking off food from the rubble of, of trash that were out discarded. And both my mine and Sean's heart kind of broke and we invited a guy over to our table and says come eat with us it was an outdoor kind of cafe deal and um, he comes over and you know remember you eat with your bare hands so we were hoping that he would wash his hand but he was so excited to be beckoned by us so he comes over and he starts eating with us and Sean and I looked at each other we knew exactly what we were thinking we said you know let's be incarnational let's not tell him to go wash his hands, but let's eat together. So we're eating together, and in the middle, toward the end of the meal, he says something that I'll never forget in all my travels. Hearing that we're from the United States, he says, you know what? Your God is powerful. Our God is weak. And I never heard anything like that. I said, what do you mean? I don't understand. He goes, you're from America. Your God is powerful because America is a powerful country, so you must have the right God, and you're a powerful country. We here in Ethiopia, we're not that well, so we're a weak country, so our God is weak. And I was really struck by that. I was really struck by the fact that we, in fact, think that way. Not just this Ethiopian mid-teenager boy, but many of us think that if a family is blessed, if a city is blessed, if a country is blessed, then it must be because they're doing something right or that their God is backing them up. 
And then if that, does, that gets kind of anchored away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what we will develop, in, unfortunately, is going to be a theology that says might makes it right. If you're a mighty country, then all that you are, all that you do is right. City of human hubris. Babylonian is, Babylon is no, no exception. We are no different from them. We need to actually have this lesson to be anchored into our being, the city of human hubris, that God says, you know what? You can pretend to be so self-sufficient, but watch. I am going to judge all nations in my perfect timing, but my timing may not be yours. And that leads me to my second point, city of divine humility. Notice something really interesting here, because God will say things like this, that he humbles those to dwell on high and so on and so forth. Yes, that's true. And notice this in verses 8 and 9 that we haven't read, but beautiful words. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your law, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Why is that? Why is it that the spirit yearns for God and longs for God? Partly because of genuine love. But the other part is partly because you're not experiencing God in the way that you should be experiencing Meaning this, there's a gap between what, how you're experiencing God and how God actually is because of this thing called divine judgment. See, here's the thing. Israel, as the apple of God's eyes, was going to experience something that they had never imagined that they would experience. That is, loss of independence, loss of their land. The city of God, Jerusalem, is going to be invaded and captured and, and occupied by foreigners, right? These Goim, you know, these uh, Gentiles, these, you know, people that do not deserve God's blessings. And so what we see here is a city of divine humility. God is behind it all. In a way that is inexplicable and really hard to explain, especially in the realm of theodicy and human suffering and God's sovereignty, it goes beyond my ken, and I'm sure it does yours too. See, God in God's perfect wisdom and plan allowed Israel to go through the experience of captivity not just once but twice. And why is that? See, God is with Israel, God is for Israel, and God allows this, you know, humiliation to take place. Because it says right here, when the grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness and so on and so forth. But then look at verse 13. Not only, Lord, you establish peace for us, all that we have accomplished you have done for us. So he is praising God. But in verse 13, this is what Isaiah says, Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. This is a plaintive cry. Isaiah is saying, Lord, you've been our God. We yearn for you. We long for you. But at the same time, other lords have ruled over us. Okay, because of their disobedience and rebellious hearts, but God, if you're with us, why are we experiencing this? And if you read through the book of Jeremiah, especially the lamentations of Jeremiah, you read some horrific things. What, you know, the kind of things that you don't imagine would be happening, that in the po points of extreme hunger, what people are capable of doing, I leave it to your imagination, found in the book of Lamentations. So that sort of extremity of human suffering that God allows Israel to go through, how do we make sense of it? Aside from the fact that it is talking about the city of divine humility. God is teaching Israel, God is teaching all of us something that is truly profound. The city of God is in exile, humiliated, lost its sovereignty, national pride is gone. 
in some ways the city of God and the purposes of God seem to lie in rubble and ruins and its desires unfulfilled and thwarted. What is going on? To properly understand, to really understand, the only way to explain and understand that at our core is by coming and eating and drinking. What do you mean eating and drinking? I'm talking about the Eucharistic elements that are here. Because to me, this explains the gospel far more eloquently than my words or other preachers' words can. When I was teaching in, in Boston, I often said to the students, you know, make sure you offer the Lord's Supper every Sunday, especially if you're not a good preacher. Because the people of God need to get something out of the worship service. They need to at least eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. And here's what I mean. What is the message of this Eucharistic element, the Lord's Supper? This is saying that the Roman stage execution, that's what it is. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, if you ask a first century Roman citizen or lawyer or senator, they will say the execution dying on a cross is a stately, state-sponsored execution. That means that person needs to be put on public display as the ultimate loser who does not deserve to live. Did you hear what I said? That is what Jesus embraced for us. He is building a city and a city whose foundation is the blood of Jesus Christ. That means it's not going to be based upon might and power and pomp and prestige. Jesus had no pomp. Jesus had no prestige. Didn't come from the right family. Didn't go to the right rabbinic school. As far as we know, he didn't even go to high school or college or whatever that was in the first century Jewish you know, counterpart. Jesus died a death like that in order to show us that the pathway, the true pathway to humility is through humiliation. Because of his humiliation, as we follow Jesus, as we are led to the third and the final point, we need to identify with Christ because he has identified with us. So the third and final point of city life in between is this. We actually need to be saved from ourselves. Salvation is not about putting down other religions or conquering other nations. No. Salvation, I need to be saved from myself. I get in the way of my salvation. I disappoint myself every day of my life. You know what I'm talking about. Right? You know, so I was talking to my son recently, and he uh, completed two weeks of work. He's a 14-year-old guy, and he got his first paycheck. He got two paychecks of $125 each. And he was really excited when he began working. And after he finished work, we talked to, my wife and I talked to him and, and said, what did you like about, he said it wasn't that great. It was kind of disappointing. And I said, okay, uh, what was so disappointing? What, and we, we said, you know, let's actually talk about some positives. What did you like most about your job experience? And he said, the, most, uh, the best part about my job experience is I don't want a job like that that he learned that I don't want to work. Okay, I said, well, that's interesting. What about the worst part of your job experience? He goes, well, that I don't want a job like that. that it's slightly disappointing, he says. And so I said, listen, let me explain something to you. So I was driving him somewhere, and I was playing this song. And, you know, as I used to be a DJ in college, I tried to illustrate points about life through songs a lot. And he's deeply into hip-hop, and I'm not deeply into hip-hop at all. I, I'm more of an 80s guy, and he's not an 80s guy. And I was playing this song. Some of you may know this song. Do you know the Beach Boys? Obviously, many of you do, right? High schools, do you know the Beach Boys? Okay, Beach Boys, all right. There's a song by the Beach Boys called Sloop John B. Any of you know that song? 
All right, good. You know why I love that song? Because it talks about, it says, I want to go home, right? See, ever since leaving Korea at age 15 and going to England for my graduate studies, I kind of forgot where home is. So when I first listened to the words of the Beach Boys, Snoop John B, and when it says, I want to go home, I feel so broke up, I want to go home, I was like, yes, this is a song. And I loved it ever since. And, but, you know, as I listened to the, I read the lyrics, this is exactly about living with disappointments. Because what you think it'll be doesn't turn out. Let me read for you how it goes. We come on the Sloop John B. It's a sailboat, right? We come on the Sloop John B., my grandfather and me, around Nassau town, we did Rome. Drinking all night, got into a fight. When I, well, I feel so broke up, I want to go home. The first mate, he got drunk. He broke in the captain's trunk. The constable had to come and take him away. Sheriff John Stone, why don't you leave me alone? Yay, yay. I feel so broke up, I want to go home. And then, final verse. The poor cook, he caught the, caught the fits and threw away all my grits. And then he took and he ate up all of my corn. Let me go home. Why don't they let me go home? This is the worst trip I've ever been on. Right? I love that song, and, and I played that song for my son. And I said, you know why I love this song? Because for one, it's Beach Boys, and I love the melody. But the lyrics are really powerful, to me at least, because it says, this guy got into the, you know, Sloop John B. boat with his grandpa, and they thought they were going to have a great time. But what, what, what ends up happening is this is the worst trip he's ever been on. And my son asked me, what's the worst trip? I said, well, it could mean a couple of different things, but you don't want to know right now, but it's, it's a bad trip, but bad trip in other ways. So all around, it was a terrible time for him. What was intended to be a wonderful time turned out to be a worst nightmare ever. And I said, you know what? Life is going to disappoint us. Much of life is actually about managing disappointments. Much of the Christian journey is actually living caught between these two cities. Because on the one hand, the city of humankind is beckoning us and says, don't follow those rules. I mean, watch dramas like House of Cards and all that. They have their own rules and regulations. Do it like this and you'll be fine. And then the city of God is calling us to follow this executed criminal called Jesus Christ. And what do we do? Many of us Christians in the 21st century are afraid of having lost the Christian privilege. There's a lot of writings about white privilege right now, and, but there's also a lot of writings about Christian privilege that many Christians are afraid that we have lost it. Frankly, a lot of white Christians are afraid that they have lost the white privilege as white Christians. But here's the thing. Christian privilege was never meant to be part of our identity. Did you hear that? Christian privilege was never meant to be part of our identity. Nor is it this Christian fragility, feeling like we lost it all. Then what is to be found in the DNA, core DNA of the Christian followers of Christ, regardless of, regardless of gender, regardless of national identity, language spoken? That is Christian hospitality. Christian hospitality. It is not just about feeding the hungry and, and sheltering the homeless. It is not just that. Far more than that, because when we see the incarnation, the drama of incarnation, Jesus coming down to be with us and for us, that's the greatest condescension ever in the best sense of the word, to come down to where we are, to be clothed naked with us and for us, to live a life as a refugee, to die a death as a stately executed criminal, and he exercised that radical hospitality and generosity. So we say goodbye to Christian privilege. We say no to Christian fragility. And yes, we say yes to Christian hospitality. Let me read for us Hebrews chapter 13 as we wrap things up. 
The writer of Hebrews says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Did you hear that? Extend hospitality because first century Christian Rome was not a safe place. And yet the writer says, you know what, do that, extend hospitality, because in doing so, you're going to entertain angels without even realizing it. You know what, there is, this is one of my favorite Greek words that are captured in this verse. You know the word xenophobia, yes? Xenophobia, xenophobia, tomato, tomato, you get that, right? Xenophobia is the Greek word that says fear of the stranger, fear of the foreigner. But the word that is used here as a showing hospitality to strangers is the antonym or the opposite of that. And the beautiful Greek word there is philozania, love of the stranger. Love of the stranger. We love the stranger in the name of Christ. As someone needs a drink, as someone needs some protection, we say, you know what, we're going to protect you. We're going to embrace you. We're going to welcome you into my family, into my life, regardless of color, regardless of culture, because that radical generosity, radical hospitality is the only way that Christians can say our words are true because our actions back them up. To me, that is the best way to forget about Christian fragility, to forget about Christian privilege, and embrace that Christian hospitality as we follow the stately criminal, stately executed criminal named Jesus Christ. City life in between. We need to forget about city of hu human hubris. We need to recognize the city of divine humility as we learn to live in this city life in between. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us yourself in that radical act of generosity and humility. We thank you for everyone who is worshiping here today, whether they are Christians or not. Lord, I pray that if they are seeking you, may you knock on their heart's door through the promptings of the word and the prayer and the act of generosity and hospitality from around them today. And for those who are identifying with Christ as Christ has identified with them, May they be nourished unto life eternal as they participate in the Lord's Supper. Through all of it, dear Lord, may you be magnified and glorified as we seek you, knowing that you're seeking us even now. In Jesus' name, amen.